Welcome to ADHD is Over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is Over. Welcome back. My guest today is Kristen Syme, a postdoctoral researcher at the Vrie University of Amsterdam. Kristen received her PhD in anthropology from Washington State University in 2020. For her dissertation, she conducted research on evolutionary approaches to social conflict, mental health, and behavioral outcomes using archival ethnographic data from the human relations area files and collecting accounts of parent-offspring conflict during adolescence and young adulthood among Micronesians. Kristen also wrote a theoretical review paper on mental health using the framework of biological anthropology, a field that synthesizes biological, evolutionary, and cultural theory and methods to make discoveries that shed light on humans, who we are, and how we got here. Kristen is the co-author of a paper published in the Yearbook of Physical Anthropology back in May of this year called Mental Health is Biological Health. Hello, Kristen. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. My pleasure. Uh, wow, that's a mouthful. I just want to start out by, by inquiring, how did you get into this field? What interested you about anthropology? Oh, well, anthropology, that goes back to um, when I was a teenager. I just, uh, I actually wanted to be, you mentioned you were an actor at one point. I wanted to be an actress at one point. I was in art school, but then I dropped out of art school because I guess I wasn't that good at it. (laughs) And um, so I I was sitting, you know, I was really uh, distraught about it because, you know, I thought my life was over at 15. And um, Mm -hmm. my, I, I was talking to my aunt and I was like, well, she was very worldly. Um, and she taught people from all over the world. She was in, uh, taught English as a second language. And I was like, what can I, is there something that involves culture? And she brought up anthropology and then I was hooked. And so that's how I came to want to be an anthropologist. Wow. That's a great story. I like that. <laughs> I think we all have similar, ch- similar childhood stories where we tried something and it didn't work out. And we're like, that's it. Life's over. <laughs> exactly. Know? Here we are years later. You're currently in Amsterdam. Um, Mm -hmm. and I just, I'm very happy for you because you, uh, wrote essentially a paper that caught my attention big time. And I know the, uh, the official title, as you mentioned, I'm going to read this off right now, and there's going to be links, uh, in our show notes for our, uh, listeners to go to is mental health is biological health. Why tackling diseases of the mind is an imperative for biological anthropology in the 21st century. So as as a creative, as someone who often gets what I call downloads, how did this come to you and your your co-author, Edward Hagen? How did this title or this this approach, this point of view come to you or you guys? Well, so I actually, I picked my advisor because he's one of the few people who um, who studies, um, in this case, he's, he specializes in depression. He had a number of papers on depression using an evolutionary perspective. Um, and that's actually really unusual. Not that many people do that. Um, and so my interest in, uh, mental health began as an undergraduate at the university of Delaware. Um, and actually uh, I had a, a family member who was depressed at the time and I was doing, um, I started a, a summer research project and, uh, I started thinking about depression, um, in part because of this family member. And, um, you know, I realized, uh, hmm, like, well, you know, I, I'm learning a lot about how a lot of, um, concepts can't be translated into different cultures. And so I started thinking about, well, how would we uh, investigate depression in different cultures? Um, And that sort of just opened the door to my interest, just not just in depression, but just mental health more broadly. So, you know, anxiety, ADHD, um, you know, and especially something like, um, you know, both depression and ADHD have the same problem of um, how do we measure it in different societies? How, I mean, these concepts don't even exist in 
certain societies. Now, maybe there's similarities to at least depression, at least like grief, but ADHD, um, you know, that seems very specific, uh, well, to the Western context. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, although I haven't collected any specific data on, uh, I haven't investigated ADHD the same way I have depression, um, in which I've collected uh, interviews actually kind of geared towards looking at situations that cause depression. Uh, In the paper, the mental health is biological health paper, we really wanted to tackle how can biological anthropologists understand not um, not just something like anxiety or depression, but how can we tackle the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders? All of those conditions are based off of symptom criteria. There's no biomarkers for any of these conditions, um, but they all seem to be related to adapt, uh, either adaptations or maybe maladaptations or dysfunctioning adaptations. Um, you know, what can biological anthropology bring to the table? Because we, oh, well, we argue it can bring quite a lot to the table. Um, mm-hmm. And... So going back a little bit, we decided to write this paper in part because biological anthropologists didn't seem to know, like I would go to the meetings, um, the AAPA meetings, American Association of Physical Anthropology, and they'd kind of be like, well, why are you here? You study mental health. What does that have to do with biological anthropology and evolution? Uh, because they're more interested in fossils and, you know, the human fossil record or, um, you know, locomotion, you know, in modern humans or, you know, something that's in their minds physical and somehow the mind and the beha- and behavior are not, are not physical in the same way. But of course they are because it goes back to our genes. Everything about us as humans has biological underpinnings. So, um, that's a long way of explaining why we felt the need to write this paper. Yeah, no, that that is great. Thanks, thanks for that explanation, and it really kind of proves this soft point that I've had for a long time. And I think your title says that, right? It's mental health is biological health, so it's almost like something we can't really grab or grasp. Well, we can grasp it sort of, but let's say it's not a tangible thing to ha- hang on to. But when you see it show up in biological health, you, you can grab onto it. And if we disconnect the two, then we're not really looking at the whole picture, right? And mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a great uh, um, a phrase that I read in this article that said, and this is quoted that, that you said this, which I love, which is the pain is not the disease. The pain is the function that is telling you there's a problem. So I just wanted you to elaborate a little bit on this because we have a similar saying, my wife and I, that the child with the, in our case, ADHD disorder is really more of a check engine light to the family. That's our theory, right? The child is pointing out disorder in the environment, not necessarily being disordered him or herself. So Mm -hmm. what does it mean to you, uh, that sentence, the pain is not the disease, the pain is the function that is telling you there's a problem? Well, in order for humans and any other organisms to have made it uh, this far, we've had to know uh, when there are threats in our environment. Um, so pain uh, has an obvious function, although uh, it's extremely aversive and unpleasant. Um, it's pain, right? Uh, it lets us know uh, that harm has been done to our body and we can avoid it both in that moment. And also we have a these psychological adaptations to help us avoid those threats in the future. So yeah, we need these uh, adaptations, these aversive adaptations to let us know, hey, we're in trouble. We have to um, avoid it right now and also in the future. Mm, I love that. Um, also, the um, you guys, there's there's a, uh, a, a paragraph. Uh, I want to make sure I don't want to read the whole thing. I'll, I'll link, link to it for our, our listeners. Um, It says, however, the anthropologists argue that some conditions might be a mismatch between modern and ancestral environments, such as attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, also known as ADHD, right? Uh, You guys pointed out that there's little in our evolutionary history that accounts for children sitting at desks quietly while watching a teacher do math equations at a board. That's right. Uh, Tell me more about that. Well, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, what would ADHD look like to hunters and gatherers living in the Congo Basin, for instance? Um, 
I just don't know what that would look like as some guy. He's just swinging from trees too much. He's too into what's going on in his environment. Uh, you know, that doesn't seem like a bad thing. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, he's paying attention to the threats that are all around him. I don't know. I don't know. Um, Sounds like really, uh, skills to me. They sound like good skills to have, right? Yeah, uh, exactly. And so we just, you know, it, this this ADHD is so it's so based on this. It doesn't exist. It seems without the 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 construct of this particular environment. Um, of and you know they say you know it can't just be in the classroom they had the, the the behavior the inattention the hyperactivity has to be uh seen not just in the classroom but also in the home but you know also homes are can people have very rigid family environments for instance um or or the church environment or whatever else it is we take children um you know it's we live in a very ordered world and uh it's just not clear to me. And, and I haven't done any research on this in the field and I don't know anyone who has yet, but, um, you know, I think actually some anthropologists are working on that. So this is a side note. Um, but, uh, and I'm really excited to see what they come up with, but, um, yeah, it, it just, I don't think it exists without the classroom environment, quite frankly. So what I'm hearing is, and, and I've been saying this for a while with my wife too, right? If we, are forcing our kids into these boxes, right? The classroom or the certain rigid family structure or even the box called you should be this way uh, or you should do this thing or not do this thing. These boxes really create friction between the child and the environment. And I think we then take that friction, those, those symptoms and we go, oh, that child has a disorder. Now to yeah. me, to me, that's just completely ridiculous, but I, I'm glad that we're uh, on, a, on a similar page there or same page that, you know, yes, there's still lots of research needed. And, but, but to me, intuitively, it just feels like, a, a, you know, a losing battle to try to squeeze a child into an environment that it, he or she's not thriving in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, it's a lot easier for, you know, because, you know, I, in fact, if you look at, you know, the prevalence of ADHD in the population, it amounts to about uh, one child per classroom. It's like one in 20. So it's like whoever that kid, that poor kid happens to be. And in addition, there's also some research to suggest um, from uh, Brazil, Scandinavia, and possibly some other places that um, younger age relative to your peers. So just having been born later um puts you at heightened risk for adhd because you are comparatively developmentally younger which is nuts which is nuts and to me completely disproves everything else you know the, the narrative that's that's given around adhd which is like it's how you're born it's genetic it's a disorder it's a neuro you know neurochemical imbalance in the brain it's like well if you have it more likely when you're younger within, you know, the same classroom, to me, that disproves a lot of these other points, you know? Yeah. And, and who knows what's going on? I mean, ADHD, it's, you know, we talk about this thing, uh, uh, construct validity, where, you know, are we talking about, uh, are we carving nature at its joints? Are we really describing a phenomenon like, um, you know, anxiety seems like a very uh, specific phenomenon. Is ADHD a phenomenon the same way anxiety is? Um, when you say phenomenon, what do you mean? Well, well, that's, is it, are we capturing uh, a specific trait? Are we capturing multiple traits? For instance, um, you know, it seems to me that there's some, uh, multi-causality here. It's not one thing. There could be normal variation in terms of hyperactivity that's, uh, that, that puts someone at risk for getting a diagnosis. They could be relatively younger in age. They could be both. They could have experienced some kind of trauma. So all of these things um, can put you at heightened risk of getting receiving a diagnosis, but it's not one cause. It's not a singular trait. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting because what we're discovering is that it all sort of goes back to, and you, you guys mentioned that as well in the, uh, it says in the article that, uh, you know, uh, depression, anxiety, and PTSD often involve a threat 
or exposure to violence, which are predictable sources for these things that we call mental diseases, right? And we're discovering similar uh, things for ADHD, which actually we believe that a lot of PTSD is misdiagnosed as ADHD. Yeah. Uh, you know, because we, we have it in society that trauma looks a certain way. It has to be sexual abuse or physical abuse. Trauma uh, has a thousand faces. And I think mm -hmm. it's an unfortunate name and people have a adverse reaction to it. Like, oh, there's no trauma here. But that said, um, what I want to just point to is, uh, you know, we're, we're not an anti-pharma, uh, you know, ADHD is not an anti-pharma movement. Yeah. At the same time, just like you guys, we're looking at this supposed chemical imbalance theory of depression, for example, or even in ADHD, right? What did you guys discover there? And how do you feel about this, this narrative that there's this chemical imbalance in the brain? Well, I think it is just that it's a narrative and uh, it's about it's, it's just unfortunately not a narrative that's tied to reality. Um, now, of course, I agree with the premise that, again, mental health is biological health. Um, there's I think the narrative comes from, on the one hand, advocates wanting to destigmatize mental illness, which is very admirable. On the other hand, then there's the sort of the, the pharmaceutical uh advantage of, well, they destigmatize de it, then they can get more people seeking diagnoses for these because they feel less stigmatized or less afraid to, to seek help, which is great, but also, but the point shouldn't be for their profits, which it kind of, it is a little bit. <laughs> I think that it's okay yeah. to admit that. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we live in a country or in a world that's profit oriented, right? I, just saw yesterday this uh, sweatshirt and it said, you know, people over profits. And I thought to myself, yeah, that's true. But in a, in a, in the case of children with mental disorders, especially during a so-called pandemic that we're in, I would say the, the, the childhood version of that sentence is, you know, children's mental health over academic performance, right? Because we're, yeah. we're stressing them out right now. Yeah. And again, that's a trauma. Where and, you know, you think, who, who's that about? You know, that's really, I think, about like parents a lot of the time wanting their kids to perform a certain way, to make the family look a certain way, as opposed to, you know, if you take it easy, maybe even if the kids like, you know, waited a year or something, you know, to the family, that's like, oh, my God, it's the end of the world. But, you know, really, is it that big of a deal? Probably not. In the grand scheme of things. <laughs> well, it is. It is the end of the world anyway. We're in a pandemic. <laughs> Can we pause? You know, and uh, yeah, I, I'm totally with you on this. And and I think a lot of that stress added stress to whatever they're already dealing with. Right. Is a lot to handle for a, a young uh, nervous system. Oh yeah, certainly. Uh, talk to me about the, uh, you, you guys theorize that depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder may be primarily responses to adversity, right? Like therefore only treating the psychic pain of these issues with drugs is not gonna solve the problem. Right. Of course, it's, especially in our individualistic society where treatment is individualistic for the most part, not all the, not the exceptions, but it usually is individualistic. Um, it's the, that's the quick fix. Right. Um, but, you know, depression, um, I mean, just the evidence goes to show that much of the time it is associated with stressful life events. Um, that's not to say that it never has, um, you know, a cause that, that that people just aren't prone to it for reasons that have purely to do with biology and nothing to do with the environment. I would suspect that that's actually really rare, um, that it never has anything to do with your environment. Um, <laughs> I think it's, I think that is fairly rare, but um, not to say that it can't happen, of course, because adaptations can dysfunction, of course, any adaptation can dysfunction. So whatever the, the adaptation for depression could certainly dysfunction. Um, but, and, and for anxiety as well, and for, um, you know, how we respond to trauma could also dysfunction. But much of the time it's associated with stressful life events, um, you know, a one-to-one -one relationship correlation there. Mm. Um, and it does remit much of the time after several months. And let me ask you a question. What do you, um, 
you guys are basically saying that some of these most common mental disorders, right, including depression, anxiety, PTSD, ADHD, might not be disorders at all. If, if they're not disorders, what would you want to call them or what would you like to see you mentioned tackling the dsm and i'm right there with you like what would you like to see this being renamed as for example if it's not a mental disorder because it's an interesting question um painful responses to adversity or something similar to that um responses to adversity adaptations um to deal with adversity so kind of like uh uh struggling with the current environment or uh, dealing with some adversity and how we react to it may look like struggle, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if something in your environment environment is harming you, um, you're probably struggling, first of all. Um, now, the other point is what does, what function, say, does sadness, does depression, does anxiety actually have? Now that's, those are a bit more complicated questions. And um, we have theories about that. Um, for instance, um, uh, Ed Hagen, my co-author, developed the bargaining model of depression, which, um, which so one component of depression possibly being that it's um, putting a cost on others to provide help. Um, so basically, when someone's being exploited, that person will kind of uh, withhold, not consciously, but kind of uh, take it back, withholding investment, um, withdrawing into the self. Um, and then, so they're not providing the cooperation that others that, mm -hmm. that others are getting because we're humans are social creatures, um, and we're always interacting. We're always interdependent with other people. And so, if someone's exploiting you, um, say uh, at work or you know uh, in the family, you're being exploited, um, then you're kind of withholding that investment by withdrawing into the self. That's interesting because I'm. Uh a friend who's dealing with that with her uh, child, her son, uh, going through depression. And I'm wondering just when you said it, that it could possibly, you know, because if a, a child is young, like seven, eight, whatever, and they're being quote unquote exploited for say love, like they're becoming the buffer between the husband and wife and they're becoming mm -hmm. the thing, you know, it's almost like I have to make mom feel like she's loved and I have to make dad feel like she's loved. And that could lead to a shutdown. Um, yeah. Right? Yeah. Especially if they're not, I mean, cause yeah, I think children are really good at sensing when they're being exploited emotionally and otherwise um, that they would just withdraw. And you know what the effect that could have is that it's not necessarily um, no one thing about depression is one reason why people don't like it and why it has stigma is because it makes other people mad <laughs> because you're not giving them what they want. Um, so it actually reflects a conflict of interest between the two people. Um, and so, yeah, it can kind of, it could turn into kind of an arms race per se. If the, ch if the child in this case is depressed and the parent gets more angry and the child gets more depressed and then, um, you know, at, at some point it, you reach a threshold that has to be resolved. Um, a lot of, uh, there are a lot of evolutionary arms races and this is potentially one of them. Hmm. Now let's go back to ADHD, right? So ADHD, and I wrote this down this morning, I, I often wake up with these, these thoughts and insights, and I just want to get your reaction to this. So one of the things that I wanted to share, and we've, my wife and I have been talking about this for a while, it's like, it's not something that we're born with, but we're born into it. And what I mean by that, it's, a, it's an existing conversation, right? Let's say a baby is born into this world, he has or she has arrived on this planet and there's already an existing conversation. There's an agreement called ADHD, right? Mm. It's a label. It's, it was made up. It's in the DSM. It's a, 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 a thing that was made up to describe these symptoms, right? Yeah. Then, but then in that case, it's not really who that person is and it's not something they have. It's something that in this case, the parents then choose to label their child with. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, I, I would 100% agree with that. It doesn't, uh, yeah, a child could be born with certain propensities, but it's the, it's the society that says, okay, you have X label. 
and then the child can then decide, you know, I mean, for, I think most children it ends up being their identity. That's the yeah. identity they're kind of stuck with and they can challenge that, but it's, it's certainly, it's very difficult to do that. And talk to me about like your belief of what I call collateral symptoms. Like, you know, the child has struggles with the environment. So let's call it the symptoms are those of ADHD. And then he or she gets labeled what effect can that have from your point of view on a child? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, that might vary from child to child and, uh, the, and it can vary depending on how their family and how their um, teachers deal with it. Um, there's certainly, I think there's some, even though we, you know, there, it, mental illness just has a stigma because you're, yeah. you're basically saying, um, I mean, the DSM, is implying it's implicit that or explicit in this case that something is wrong with you um yeah now you can kind of challenge that like the sort of the um autism group has said you know we don't want to call it um, a dysfunction we want to call it a, a a neurological difference um you know but it's still hard you're still coming up against that label mental disorder mental illness um I don't know if, as long as that label is there, as long as that's what the the medical community calls it, I, I think it's it's very difficult to challenge. Well, let's. It's kind of like uh, if we use the example of you and I. Let's say we first met and uh, we talk and we get to know each other, and and I say I have a disorder. I mean, what's your reaction? I'd be like a disorder. I assume something's wrong i mean it implies something right. is wrong that's the meaning um you're incapable of something that most people are capable of and this I mean, is, that's what's going on i mean that's what it says essentially right and this this is you and i being adults now i would imagine a child that's told that there's something wrong with you or you have a problem or more so i think children will then internalize it as in like i am a problem or i yeah am broken right yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, that's going to come with, uh, you know, disappointment potentially from their families, people being disappointed in them, or even if they're trying to say, oh, I mean, I don't know, I'm, con I'm conjecturing here, but I'm just picturing the like, sorts of conversations that might go on like, oh, well, you know, we've got medication for it. You know, it's okay. It's still, you know, you there's... <laughs> something's wrong, you know? Right. It's still that context of like, we need to fix you. Yes. Yes. It's funny. I had this early, my wife doesn't like the episode, but I had this, this, this episode where I basically said, you know, Oh, Oh God just make made another broken child. Okay. And I'm not a religious person. Like I'm spiritual, but if we're approaching it that way, then we're basically saying, you know, evolution or God or, the universe is producing all these broken brains inside of children. I mean, I'm open that that's the case and we have to uh, grow through it and develop through it and learn something from it, but it just didn't never made sense to me. Yeah. And I mean, certainly there are mutations and dysfunctions. Um, that's why for our paper, we talked about population prevalence being really important, um, but also just difference or being statistically unusual not sufficient evidence for disorder because some, you know, at least in our society, someone who's uh, highly intelligent is rare and unusual. Um, but we wouldn't say they're disordered. Right. Um, right, but right. maybe, but it could be in certain contexts. Um, maybe there's some trade off there. They're really intelligent. They're really good at math or something, but maybe they're lacking in social skills. So maybe it doesn't help them in some, right. <laughs> again, pure hypothetical, but just, um, you know, there's human variation. I mean, no human is exactly the same. Yeah. Um, and so some people are just better at certain things than others. Some people are fast runners. Some people are good singers. And I think we're just in an environment that you better be good at paying attention. <laughs> that's just something we decided to, we didn't decide it, but that's something that sort of falls out of our environment, that it's valuable. Right, exactly. And there's uh, one more thing I want to touch upon uh, before asking a few more questions. Uh, Gabor Mate, one of our experts, he recently uh, said in a video, he didn't say it recently, I saw it recently again, but he said that genes don't change in a population over 10, you know, 15 years because somebody had asked him how come there's a rise in ADHD. 
And he was definitely pointing at the environment, at our society. There's just more trauma. There's more stuff coming at us. It's, it's just not, it's not genetic. So what do you say when you hear people say it's genetic in the case of ADHD? Well, you know, all behavior is the product of genes and environment. So I don't say it's, that doesn't mean there's something wrong. It doesn't make it a disorder. Um, but what, what's, I mean, I think it's partly, um, you know, Alan Francis chair of the DSM four says that it's, you know, probably market driven to some extent. Um, you know, changing values of our society, you know, everybody wants to have, you know, everyone's keeping up with their neighbors. Um, everyone wants to have their kids do well in school. Um, or else. <laughs> um, are yeah, you I saying this is about money? I'm, what I'm, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not saying you are saying that, but I hear, and I've suspected this too. It's like the carrot on a stick, right? The parents stick with the carrot on it for their child. The carrot's usually money or success or a, a successful yeah. career, not mental health. Yeah. And, you know, I actually, that was something. So I did my um, dissertation research on parent-child conflict um, with Micronesian Islanders who were colonized. Um, so they're, um, you know, they're from Chuuk State, Federated States of Micronesia. They were colonized. Um, they don't, they, they haven't had a formal education. I mean, it's, it's a recent advent in their society. Not everybody, you know, up until, you know, 30, 40 years ago, you didn't need a high school education to to function, to, to be a functioning member of society. And even now that's not the case on the islands, but, um, uh, because of market integration, um, just also climate change loss of some of the, uh, um, uh, so they're not able to subsist the same way because of loss of, uh, fishing regions. Um, so they're increasingly, uh, coming to the U S and they don't do very well in school. Um, and par sure. partly because it's new, this is not something like, you know, mo like, you know, my great grandparents were in a classroom and it's been passed down. This is something that even their, most of the time their parents didn't finish elementary school mm. or middle school, or they, they, maybe they got to they, you know, at 16, they dropped out. Um, and their parents really, that's actually the main thing that they argue about is homework the amount of time they invest in school, whether they're paying attention in school. And it's of course, because they struggle, the parents struggle. Um, they don't have high school educations. So they come to the U S and they have their, they, they can barely get by. They're just scraping by. Um, yeah. Yeah. they have to live, uh, you know, with extended family members of like eight people in a two bedroom home, life is really hard and they yeah. want their kids, um, to, I mean, part of it, there's, there's a competition there. They want to be, they're really competitive society, which is something I really like about them. <laughs> um, but that comes with a, a cost as well as that, you know, there's like this pressure they put on their kids to, to be competitive. Um, so there's that aspect. And it's also, they just, they want their kids to have a better life than what they have. Of course. I mean, that's uh, every parent, right. From the love of our hearts to our children, we want them to do well. Right. Yeah. And uh, that's a great example uh, uh, for me. You know, this coming to America, coming to this system that we've created that they're trying to fit into. And it can easily like, you know, pull you into like this, this siren kind of thing of like, wow, you're going to make a lot of money. You're going to have a title. You're going to be like you said, you're competitive. You're going to succeed. You're, and, and, and suddenly you're in it and you don't even question it anymore. Right? Yeah. And yeah. we don't, we don't, our kids are born into this, this system. So let me ask you then, do you believe that what would happen to a lot of these early childhood mental disorders if we took away school, the current school system, if that was completely not a box? Uh, I think that'd be a really interesting experiment. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, you got to put, I mean, kids are, you know, I think some kids, they just, they learn. I mean, kids learn through play much of the time. Um, they learn through instruction, but they, I mean, you know, kids in these small scale societies, they're, yeah, they're helping out their parents. Um, their parents teach them things, their aunts and uncles teach them things, but they learn so much just through play. And I think that's actually something, um, I don't know. 
well, get rid of schools and just, I don't know, let kids play all day. Don't Let's listen to play. me. <laughs> well, that's actually interesting that you say that because our, our kids are at a school like that where it's, it's child led. So they get to play all day long. They get to say what they want to do. And our son wasn't reading till about uh, the, the older one, Kai, who's the one that got diagnosed five years ago. He wasn't reading until, you know, maybe three, even two years ago. He was like eight-ish, nine, which would freak most parents out. Mm. But at some point, he was really into Pokemon cards, you know, those playing cards, right? And he had to read it. He couldn't play the game unless he could read what's on the card. And so he taught himself how to read. And that was that. And wow. Uh, that was in a matter of a couple of months. And so my wife and I got a big lesson in trust, like trust that if they, they will need it, they will learn, they will go on YouTube, Google, whatever, they will get it. And that's how it's been to this day. And so we're big proponents of, you know, let them unfold and let them tell us when they want to learn something, how they want to learn something. Yeah. Well, yeah. And kids, you know, they're, you know, a lot of times we're, you know, so we have these adaptations, um, we learn through aversiveness not to do something, but we also learn because we want to do something that something is potentially profitable. And sometimes kids, you know, they'll have, they'll be intensely focused on something because they're finding it profitable to them. They're learning something or it's piquing their interest in some ways. Um, and that's going to be different for every child. And, um, exactly. you know, in some cases, I think some kids aren't very good at redirecting their attention. Um, that's yeah. actually, that's a feature of many mental disorders. <laughs> well, I always say, uh, you know, I forgot, it was Nadine uh, Burke. Um, let's see, she's the current, uh, um, I'm blanking here, but she's, she, she gave a TED talk, Nadine Burke Harris, I believe. And uh, she said that, you know, the, the prefrontal cortex kind of gets, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it gets hijacked by the need to process something that's, dysfunctional in the environment. And so he can't learn, the, the child can't sit at school and actually learn algebra when, for example, he or she's processing a divorce at home, right? Yeah. It, it can't do both at the same time. And I always thought that was fascinating. Uh, she's the Surgeon General of California, I believe still. So hearing that, I was like, oh, wait a minute. So there is something going on uh, uh, that's disordered, but it's not the brain, yep. it's the environment. Yeah. I mean, cause we're problem solvers. Humans are problem solvers. We've got these brains that help us solve problems in our environment. So if someone's, you know, that's a feature of depression too, that if you're depressed, um, also something that's highly comorbid with ADHD, um, that if you're you know, depressed, it's because something's wrong and you can't stop. One of the features is you can't stop thinking about something that's wrong because you want to fix it. Um, mm. and sometimes, uh, especially in our environment, if you're, and especially if you're a powerless person, like a child <laughs> or yeah. a relatively powerless person, there's not much you can do to fix it, but you might not know that. You, so your brain's still trying to figure out what can I do? Cause maybe eventually something will come along and you're like, there it is. That's the thing that's going to get me. That's my ticket out of here. But you kind of have to be focused in that way to, right. to be able to take those opportunities when they arise. It's almost like a hyper-focus but obviously not into grades or academics, but you're yeah. problem solving, right? Which yeah. I think why kids with ADHD are so great at uh, problem solving and hyper-focusing when they choose to. And I love when some of the other experts on the other side, I call it the other camp, they say, well, but you, life isn't about always focusing on what you want to. And I'm thinking, <laughs> but wouldn't it be nice if we could create a life in a world that's about that, you know, like- Yeah, conflicts of interest. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Conf conflicts and, and frictions, right? That that we just we just and, and I think that's something you guys also mentioned about the symptoms, right? That um, that that it, we're treating or we're trying to just work with the symptoms. Everything is classified by symptoms that you know. Hopefully, the underlying patterns are going to lead to the solutions, and you know. But as you mm -hmm. guys are saying, it hasn't. Mm -hmm. And I wonder uh, why we're so fixated on symptoms and on measuring them and labeling them versus actually like admitting to ourselves that our environment is very challenging right now. The world is a very challenging place currently. I, 
I think it's because, you know, the symptoms. So initially the, with the, when the DSM three came into being, um, Spitzer, who was Robert Spitzer, who um, you know, spearheaded the symptom-based approach, his goal was that it would ultimately lead to um, a better classification system, not based on symptoms, but based on you know dysfunctions, as opposed to just oh, symptoms we don't like, which is the yeah. way it is now. Um, but you know, he's said that's a failure. Um, and but why it persists is because I mean, there's a lot going on here. The DSM has just basically cemented itself into our society it's there's so many uh things going on you know with insurance reimbursement and um uh you know right. it has achieved a lot of real world power and the whole business, um, the whole business uh yeah it is a business yeah yeah and um well and then there's the pharmaceutical aspect in fact a lot of representatives of the pharmaceutical industry are involved in um revising the dsm so yeah, who knows what's going on there? <laughs> well, it's interesting because the, the, the whole symptoms, right? Like, um, for example, uh, there's a there's research that I believe like over seven or something, 70 percent of the teachers are female. Right. And so when you look at girls, they're just behaving differently in a classroom environment. And so when you then have a female teacher and it has boys that are rambunctious, it's easy for that teacher to think you're not being like quote unquote, everyone else in the classroom. Yeah. So there's a, the, the bias uh, from the person who has the power in that situation, which is the teacher. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I get it. Like it is, can be very challenging to have a child that has so much energy and doesn't listen and, you know, jumps up, up and down. I get mm-hmm. it. And I but, get that they're going to be uh, interfering with the, you know, so there are going to be some kids, many kids who are really want to learn and they're there to learn. Um, and so that one child is, you know, being disruptive, but that has to do with the system. Right. And exactly. it, it's a lot easier to just pinpoint the child. And we all remember in school, that kid who would repeatedly get sent out to the class to the principal's office. Um, you know, it's just easier to kick that kid out or to medicate that kid um, rather than to change the system. No, because right. we all remember that kid never changed, right? <laughs> hey, I changed. <laughs> well, I think, I think you're right. I mean, if you look at a classroom environment, if we're not addressing or catering to all the different learning styles, then we're going to have disruptors because they're going to be like you said, they're going to be like the little red flag or the check engine light, as we call it, that to say, hey, this sucks. This is boring. This is not how I learn. Like, what are we doing here? Right. Yeah. But, we, but obviously we don't have enough time or energy or even funding to accommodate all the different learning styles. And we would have to suddenly make education a priority, which I'm not sure if this country is interested in that right now. I mean, higher education. Yes. Um, you know, but public school. Mm, I yeah. think there's there's a thorn in, in the eye of of uh, obviously the budget. But um, I just want to ask you. There's a wonderful uh, uh, sentence at the end of the article that said uh, that as anthropologists, that we should be studying this a lot more because the mental health burden in the populations we often study is quite high. Um, what are you seeing? What are you predicting that if, say, we don't uh, study this more, we don't go in the direction that you and, and, and Edward went in, uh, what could happen to our population? with all this, with this heavy mental health burden. Now add COVID on top and some election yeah. stuff, right? What, what, what do you predict uh, could happen to a society during that process? Well, well our, chain, our society is changing rapidly. Um, you know, so not even mentioning the pandemic, which is having effects on mental health. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a whole other can of worms, but I mean, just yep. the other aspects of our society are changing so rapidly. Um, you know, the suicide rates going up, suicidal ideations going up, anxiety and depression are going up, especially in young adolescent girls, it looks like. And a lot of that has to do, seems like it has to do with social media. I mean, that's the way it's looking right now, um, which is, you know, this novel tool in our environment. Um, we don't know what's going on there. And so if we don't understand, if we don't begin to understand how the environment impacts our, our well-being psychologically and physically, or, you know, and we, of course we argue those are the same things, but, um, if we don't understand that, what, um, 
you know, we're just not going to know. We're going to keep just throwing pills at people and hoping that solves the problem. That's clearly that's not working. So, mm-hmm. I mean, we can just keep going down the path we're going and pretend like there's nothing wrong with our society. Um, but then, you know, more people are going to suffer, more people are going to die. Absolutely. I'm with you on that. Um, in terms of uh, anthropology or, you know, if we look at uh, Tom Hartman is one of our experts as well. And he wrote this book, well, it just got re- renamed the new release, uh, A Hunter in a Farmer's World. So he had this theory, right, that people are essentially either a hunter or a farmer. They're either patient, they like systems, they put their head down, or they're hunters. They need to go out and get food and go kill stuff and bring home the bacon and survive, right? Um, is there, uh, from your research, do you see that more as a, a metaphor and it's not really what's so, or could it be that something like that is at play uh, for, if we want to call them two main brain types or two main learning styles or living styles um, in mm. society? I, you know, I'm, I'm always, I don't necessarily believe in dichotomies like that. I'm always skeptical of dichotomies like that, but um, mm-hmm. I'm definitely open to just the fact that there's variation that uh, humans can't all be the same. Um, yay, yay, thank God. Yes, yeah, because <laughs> we live in social groups and it looks like, you know, we actually, you know, we evolved to, to maintain differences in our populations. So, um, yeah, yeah. I, I, oh, I like that. There might be some merit to it, but I'm agnostic on it, I'd say, until the data's in. Mm-hmm. No, that's great. I mean, you have to be, right? You gotta, you gotta dig for the data, as they say, especially yes. in your in your field. Um, tell me about was there any backlash, anything that you and and Edward, uh, if I may call him that, experienced from any of the communities? I'm just, I haven't heard anything, but I'm curious. Um, backlash. We got some. Oh, I got some crazy emails, <laughs> I, oh, but it was me. mostly from people who um, didn't read it, didn't really understand it. Um, so I, I wasn't too worried about it. Um, was it kind of in the same, cause we get that a lot too, where people say, uh, you're saying my struggle isn't real. Or, yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I think they just didn't read the article or they didn't understand the article. Um, because I mean, the whole point is that, um, we're saying the struggle is real. <laughs> the struggle is definitely right. real. Um, it's just that I think people have a hard time because we've had, and I just saw a meme the other day on Facebook about, you know, the chemical imbalance model. And like, as if the only way to destigmatize mental illness is through chemical imbalance models, you know, damn, damn it. If there's no evidence, you know? Right. Um, right. And so I just think some people just, you know, um, you know, human differences. Some people just, I think have a hard time separating, Yes, we can destigmatize it. Yes, there's this one way people have, are trying to destigmatize it, but that's not necessarily working. And it's and especially if it's not true, then maybe we should find something that is true. Right. It's it's interesting because uh, one of our consultants, Bob Whitaker from Mad in America, um, he he told me flat out. He said, "Show me the evidence of the neurochemical imbalance." He said, "There is none." The 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 experts that have been dealing with that for a while have said, "We don't have." it doesn't exist. It's not a a science or a study we can point to, but pharma ran with it because it Mm -hmm. sounds great. And I always say, even if there is a chemical imbalance, isn't it due to something? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's not just like, you're not born that way where the defect brain, there's no science on that either, but somebody ran with it and, you know, God forbid it's out there and it's, it's the narrative, you know? So yeah, um, that must be, must be also hard for especially researchers like you guys, where it's almost like running into a wall and people go, well, there's a wall. You can't go any further. Sorry. Yeah. And, and you know, I just, you know, I'm accepting that cause I'm early in my career and I'm thinking like, you know, early, early on, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to challenge this narrative. We're going to like take <laughs> over the narrative. And of course it's way harder than that. It's, you know, it's, there are these processes and societies that are just much bigger than any individual or any group of individuals. And so, you know, I, I like to get the facts out there. Um, you know, it's some people, you know, it speaks to them and that's great. And it just, you know, it's gotta be part of a bigger movement. Absolutely. Well, I want to end uh, our conversation, which has been really wonderful. And, and thank you for engaging in these, you know, slightly perhaps off topic from what you research with, 
uh, more of depression or anxiety perhaps, but still inside of the same dialogue. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, thank you. This was fun. Yeah. I just want to, one last sentence that I love that, that you, uh, you said that uh, you compared this sort of approach, right. To, to just treating the symptoms or using medication, com you compared it to medicating someone for a broken bone without setting the bone itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you seem to have really great uh, metaphors and, and I have the same thing. And where does that come from? Have you been, have you been early on seeing that, that, that perhaps medication is more of a bandaid or, or, a, you know, a, what is it? A coping or. Yeah. I mean, that's what, if, if you go with uh, the idea that, you know, we have these adaptations that help us um, solve problems in our environment, um, you know, you, because, you know, there's that analogy between, uh, you know, depression, say sadness and anxiety and pain already exist. And so, yeah, just taking it that step further of, um, you know, you can't, it's a signal of a problem. It's not the problem itself. And there's nothing wrong with treating, um, you know, you know, treating pain, for instance, I'm all for, I gave birth a couple months ago. I'm all for treating pain. <laughs> oh, nice. Really? Just a couple months ago. Yeah. Five months ago. And I was, you know, I was going to wow. try to do a natural birth, you know, I got a couple hours and I was like, yeah, no, please give me the pain medication. <laughs> got it. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, as long as you're not ignoring, uh, the cause. That's and it's important well. that we figure that out. Yes. Yes. And, and of course, congratulations. That's a, that's a big step, uh, in life to, to, to give birth and have a child and still studying. So I acknowledge you for, uh, for keeping that all, um, alive and energized. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's, uh, it actually motivates me more to, to study and learn about the world because now I have to mm -hmm. teach it to someone else. There we go. Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, again, thank you for the conversation, but also mainly thank you for uh, being part of this. I call it the we're on the same team of uh, perhaps questioning current narratives, not because we're people who like to distrust or you know mistrust others, but we really I really get your commitment here to make a difference in the mental health community uh, around disorders and diseases. So so thank you for doing that. Thank you. And thank you for everything that you do. Oh, thank you. Appreciate that. Well, it was great having you on the, uh, the show and, uh, I wish you all the best with your, with your postdoctoral studies. And, uh, perhaps we can do a follow-up sometime when you discover that the latest, you know, the latest in, in uh, <laughs> anthropology that has to do with mental disorders. I'd love to hear about it. Yeah. I look forward to it. Cool. Well, thank you, uh, Kristen, and, and have a good, what is it, evening, right? You're going to, soon going to yep. bed and we're up. <laughs> Couple hours, yep. <laughs> All right. It was nice connecting with you. All and, right. Uh, I'll be in touch. Okay. Okay. Take All care. All the best. Yep. Bye.